Yeah. So you're going to sketch us while no, we're... I don't know. I'm just waiting until you guys are getting ready to start. <laughs> you're welcome to. Like, kill time. I'm a terrible model, though. I've... Oh, I did? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is very exciting. We've been trying to schedule this for quite a while. And this is in the new space, which we've had a grand tour of. So. Yeah, yeah. And also, actually, when we were conceiving this idea, and I've said this to a, uh, a couple of artists that we've had on, but when we were conceiving this idea of a podcast, one of the first names that came to my head was like, I really want James Gurney on Wow. So, that's you. One, well, thank two. you. Well, it's on top a, it's of that, meant to be. You are one of the most requested uh, artists to that we get emails, lots of emails. From I stuffed who, the ballot box. <laughs> <laughs> are you getting? Yeah. Tony's coming through. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, yeah, to describe this place, it's uh, there's a long row of cedars and poplars and a big fountain mar lined with marble putti and yes. before you get into the spaces <laughs> and, and then there's just and these and there's, original sculptures from Rome we had an unlimited budget so yeah we really went to town and then uh, you know maidens wearing diaphanous dresses that dance for you when you come in the door did you see the bowling alley? No, that's just totally I missed that okay it's right past the helicopter landing yeah, and the beach. We yeah. have the beach. Oh too. yeah, we have the beach, and and that's and where we dock the yacht. Yes, <laughs> right. I didn't see that because I it's came in on the, the helicopter. Take the helicopter. Yeah. yeah. Very good. All right. But so actually, it's he, it's well enough heated here. You know, if you really want to simulate the conditions of the academic students in Paris, you need to have the coal stoves and then get the temperature of the room down to about minus. 20 degrees oh. <laughs> so they have to sit right next to the stove to the stove so everybody is around the stove getting all warm yeah that's their hands are all cramped up because it's too cold exactly that's what builds the sort of spirit of adventure <laughs> yeah but i've also heard those um uh, the ideas of the practical jokes that went on at like oh, Jose Art. Insane. I think there was one that went. Didn't somebody die? In like a Jerome's. Lot, yeah. a in, lot of in Jerome's class, somebody died, I think. I just remember something somebody like suspended in a cage, naked, getting poked at. Yes, there was a guy yes. who they put up on this high shelf. He was a, a new <laughs> recruit. And, uh, and they wouldn't let him down. And it was a long fall. But they, the regular thing when they would do the hazing for newcomers is they would have a strip naked, they would strip naked and then have a duel with paintbrushes loaded with cobalt blue paint. <laughs> That's what we do here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, apparently there was a, um, a bucket over the door trick too. And apparently that was, uh, Jerome's students were notorious for that. Yeah. You walk in and like a bucket of water just hit you. Like yeah. cold water. It's up there with the banana peel that they would Yeah, use. the banana peel <laughs> slip. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they shut down Beaux-Arts because the guys were so crazy. But it, it was kind of a time of contrast, too, because you had uh, everyone just cutting loose and going crazy. But then when Jerome walked in, everyone just came to attention because they said that he had this kind of military bearing. Yeah. And, you know, everyone just respected him so much. And so there was no... Except when he wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. When he walked out of the room, it was a there different story. When just kill people. When the yeah. cat's away. Yeah. Nice so, welcome. <laughs> to suggest a donation. I'm Edward Minoff. I'm Tony Surinai. And I'm James Gurney. Yay! <laughs> I guess that was the cue. Yes! <laughs> we are really honored, like beyond excited, to have finally scheduled a time when we can record with you. You are one of the most requested uh, names that we get, and we're really honored. Yeah, that we get a Thank lot you. Of, I'm glad it worked out, and I'm really glad you asked me. I love your show, and I've, I think I've listened to all of them. Oh, wow. Except for the second to the last one. They're great. Uh, <laughs> I've seen your work for a long time. I think I was my first, my first year in college, I went to the Society of Illustrators, and I think you just put up um, one of your first Anatopia paintings there, and I was like, oh, it was my favorite painting in the whole show. Because... Uh, you remember Society of Illustrators yeah. was such a cool place to see 
you know, the newest illustrations, you know, the top people at the top of their game showing. And I, and I saw your painting and I was just like, since then, I kind of I just followed your career. Thank you, and I admire both of your guys' work too. That piece you did at the studio with the, the rhino is fantastic. Oh, thank you, and, thank uh, you. And I've been you know watching your seascapes and oh, you did some great stuff with that. So no, so it's my honor to be here and you know walking around the studio and seeing the spaces for you know the practicing masters mm -hmm. and then the first years and the yeah, well, second we're, years. We're, it's a great like you're saying it's a community that you guys are creating yeah. here and and that's what the show does too. I mean, and what's neat about it is your show goes to around the world. I imagine you must get people talking uh responding from all corners of the globe and it, it's a worldwide community yeah good we and bad. haven't figured out bad. how to translate it yet yeah. <laughs> we're working on that but, but yeah so uh where did you where'd you grow up i grew up in palo alto california before no. facebook Bef and google discovered it <laughs> before yeah. apple made it yeah that's yeah. right and um i went to college at uc berkeley and you studied archaeology? I did, yeah. I majored in archaeology, and I studied a little of everything, paleontology and history and all kinds of different things, I, although I always wanted to be an artist. Uh, and so I went on to art school after that at Art Center in Pasadena. Okay. So you didn't really study art at Berkeley, or there wasn't much to learn there? What, what was There the was an art. I took like one figure drawing class, and there was this model who would pose with a goat. He'd, he'd uh, strip naked and have his goat stand next and to what him. what era Berkeley is this? This would be go uh, Berkeley <laughs> about 1977 or so. Yeah. So this goat past was, the like, LSD. <laughs> yeah, no, well, there was plenty of LSD cases along Telegraph <laughs> Avenue, and I met every last one of them pretty much. But, um, but this, this guy, this goat posed and knew when the, when the bell would ring, it would like get down off the stand. The goat? And the goat, yeah. Yeah, it posed perfectly still. That sounds amazing. It was a trained goat. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the teacher said, he took one look at my drawing and says, you've got to loosen up and be more expressive. And I, I knew what I wanted, and I knew that right. Berkeley didn't have what I wanted. You wanted a tighter goat. I wanted a tighter goat, yeah. <laughs> but what, when you said you knew what you wanted, what were you looking at that said, well, I, I want to do this at the time? Well, I mean, going back to when I was younger, I somehow when I was about 12, got to go see a, an exhibit of Norman Rockwell paintings mm -hmm. in San Francisco. And those just floored me. That, seeing those, uh, and also seeing a, a Rembrandt that, to me, as a kid, seemed to come to life and turn his head as I walked by him. And it's just like that magical quality yeah. of a painting that's seemed alive. Um, but we got a copy of the Norman Rockwell Illustrator, which is the book that he did with yeah. Arthur Guptill in 46. Classic and in the book. back is, was Rockwell's complete method of doing thumbnail sketches and charcoal cartoons. Oh my God. And the whole thing, getting a model and, and you know, whether or not to use photography. So I took that as my meat and drink when I was about 13. And I even tried to have the local neighborhood kids come over and pose, and I did the charcoal study, and the, my paintings came out horrible. But I, I drew constantly and did a lot of, my first professional work was in lettering. Um, but I didn't paint until a bit later. Um, but so as far as like how, where that led me is that I, I was interested in what I could find in other books. And by the time I got to Berkeley, I discovered Creative Illustration, uh, mm -hmm. Loomis's book, and the Famous Artist Course. And I think those are still yeah. some of the best uh, instruction for multi-figure compositions and storytelling pictures. So you know, why archaeology then? Uh, just because I always I got a chance to go on a dig. I was fascinated by it. I, I grew up with a set of National Geographics. And I, as a kid, would, I would read about all these old uh, archaeological expeditions to South America. And I, I dreamed about these like lost cities of 
Machu Picchu and uh, you know yeah. Atlantis is it real and El Dorado right. all this kind of stuff when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out were you like oh that's what I want to do <laughs> yeah I want yeah. to be Indian and, and there really um, are archaeologists like that that I've met in the course of, uh, of doing archaeological reconstructions which mm-hmm. is what I ended up doing for I mean maybe I'm jumping ahead a little too much but it's okay no working uh, for National Geographic that's what my job was so that even though I didn't really plan to do anything with archaeology or paleontology, I just loved the subjects. I ended up kind of tying that in with the with the painting. So, were you traveling? Were you going to like far off lands and areas? Yeah, I mean, well, even in college, um, we got to go and do a dig looking for uh, ice age mammals, not far from Berkeley at all. And wow. so, in a paleontology class, we got to reconstruct the bones and and reconstruct what a, what an ancient camel would look like in North America. And you know, I know there's no camels now, but there were at one time. Yeah. And we just had a few bones to work from, and so it really required us to try to, you know, work with the scientists to try to reconstruct these animals. You were drawing them to help reconstruct them. Yeah, I mean, I was doing that as early as college, um, but I did that later professionally for geographic. Doing illustration. Yes. For, yeah. But also in college, I got a chance to work for the uh, archaeology museum, um, the Krober Museum, which had a huge collection of uh, old artifacts like mummies and grass skirts and weird ceremonial masks and uh, some there were some archaeologists who wanted me to do uh, very exact drawings of like Egyptian scarab carvings these had hieroglyphs on the back mm-hmm. and I had to get the hieroglyphs all exact and <laughs> these are scratchboard renderings so they had to be really close really accurate right uh, and um, and it was really a thrill because they would publish these in the scientific papers and this is after you'd had a little bit of training at that point in uh, in like at in um, at the art center and the no, I hadn't got to art center yet. Oh, okay. um, a couple of my friends had gone down there, so I, I I went down to art center too. That's where Jeanette and I met. We were sketching buddies <laughs> at, at art center. This was about 1979, uh, and we met in perspective class. Yeah, you're just mentioning perspective class. <laughs> now, were you sculpting too? Because I was much as a kid, and, and you know, in college eight years, mm-hmm. I was much more of a 3D builder than I was a painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, even though I drew a lot, I was frustrated with perspective and trying to make a picture look three-dimensional and to open up that space. Um, and until I learned more about perspective, um, I was much happier building three-dimensional stuff. So I, was, I built a complete gorilla mask with working uh, <laughs> resin jaws. Uh, and I still wear, I think I wear that sometimes when I'm riding my unicycle. <laughs> um, but, and I, I built all kinds Who doesn't? of masks and um, model airplanes, like radio control model airplanes yeah. and stuff like that. That, and now, is it, does the influence, because I did read that your father was a mechanical engineer, yes. does that have a lot of influence on... Yeah, he would draw more as designs for things he was going to build, like if he was going to build a, a kind of a boat, he'd draw the side views and stuff yeah. and, and think like an engineer in that way. So we'd always go to cheap restaurants because they had paper napkins so we could draw design <laughs> draw things on it. So I was designing kite <laughs> string climbers and all this kind of stuff. And so for me, drawing was uh, a way of imagining how to build something. And my dad said something that I guess is still sort of true, which is that everything begins as a drawing. I mean, whether it's a picture frame or a, yeah. or a computer or whatever, someone has to draw it first. Well, now, of course, it's done on a computer. But in those, the old days, I mean, everything had to start out as an engineer's drawing. Yeah, yeah. Now, things like, you know, when you're, were you watching, because I know, like, King Kong and... You know the Sinbad movies or the Jason and the Argonauts or any of those like Ray Harryhausen models and all those kind of fantastical creatures. Did those have an influence too? To an extent. I mean, I saw some of those films, but I didn't run across really very many 
uh, uh, science fiction movies until later, till Star Wars and that era. Yeah. Uh, or and I didn't run across comics much, except for like Peanuts and Mad Magazine, which I loved. Right. Yeah. So, but what I what I loved was the old um, illustrated Scribner's classics. You know, the uh, uh, Treasure Island, the N.C. Wyeth, yeah. and yeah. Um, Maxfield Parrish. So I was I was aware of those guys. I didn't know they were like old. Right? <laughs> I just thought they were cool. <laughs> So kind of the quality of the illustration was what was drawing you in. I mean, oh yeah, so. yeah. The the just and the idea that an illustrated book could take you to a different world. You know, I mean, I really loved those books. Right. So, so when when you were in college, then so you knew what you wanted, and you started, um, you know, you started studying. You you were focusing in more on what you wanted to study, and then when you graduated, I did read, and it's kind of like a legendary uh, uh, tale of you and Thomas Kincaid. Hopping boxcars? Box cars yeah. cross country to, to, to landscape paint? Yeah, Tom uh, was assigned as my freshman roommate at UC Berkeley. So yeah. we started out at, at like age 17 at Berkeley. And uh, he went down to Art Center first. And I, I finished up at Berkeley and then went down there. So he didn't finish up at Berkeley? No, he, he just didn't. Decided uh, he wanted to get wanted, down to art right. school, yeah. And then um, we all lived uh, with Kincaid and me and Jeanette and, and some comic artists and some fantasy artists. Uh, many of whom have come, gone on to become kind of legendary. All lived in this one little crappy what apartment. What artists? Or what comic artists? Uh, well, Bryn Bernard. Uh, let's see, Paul Chadwick, who did Concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron Harris. Yeah. Uh, Alan Monroe, who's a special effects guy. A bunch of other guys. And, uh, you know, we'd swap uh, art supplies and pose for each other and have sketching uh, challenges and things yeah. like that. <laughs> Uh, but Tom and I, we'd, we'd ride off on a motorcycle. I'd, I'd, I'd sit on the back of his motorcycle. We'd go off and get into these antics, you know, like uh, sketching people in bars. And one time we went to this bar, and, and uh, he had got a whole big sack of toilet paper. And just on a whim, he just put these toilet paper rolls on the pool table. And all these, like, bikers, these really scary-looking bikers, were looking at what the hell are you guys doing? And we said, oh, we're going to play pad pool. And they said, pad pool? Yeah, that's what we, that's the kind of game we play. We just like on the spot invented this mm. form of pool. and got all these like bumper pools <laughs> and dudes. they were like into it. Like, so yeah. you're hitting the the toilet paper roll, yeah. or you're hitting the b- balls, and then they're bouncing. They're around bouncing off the, the toilet, toilet paper. paper. <laughs> you know. Was there was there money being exchanged or anything? Uh, we <laughs> left those guys. They they seemed like they were getting into it more than we were, so we took off. There's now a but, pad uh, pool biker tournament every year yeah. as a result of this. <laughs> but um, we. Um, uh, I was at Art Center for just two semesters, and, and after that, I mean, the, the kind of windowless rooms and the marker fumes were, I don't know about Tom, but they were getting to me. But, so we, we said, I wonder if, if we could like spend the summer the going across outdoors. America. So we went down to the L.A. freight yards, and we met this guy, this hobo named Bud, and we said, how do you catch a freight train? And he said, well, cool. you got to wait till it gets up to yard speed and watch out for the bulls. And I said, who are they? They said, they're the, they're the detectives yeah. that will kick you off. But you can talk to the guys on the on the engine or the caboose; they'll help you out. Yeah. So we packed up our backpacks with a bunch of markers and sketchbooks, uh, and by backpacks you mean a pole with a handkerchief tied. Oh, yeah. almost <laughs> right. no, a regular regular backpack, and we filled up these big Tupperware uh, things with um, a mixture of peanut butter and honey. We figured that would be some kind of food that we could eat. <laughs> that, 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 that was a bad idea. For no reason. Life-giving <laughs> nutrition. It, this stuff turned into like this completely solid mass we couldn't eat. <laughs> so we, uh, we couldn't afford like a hotel or anything. So yeah. we would sleep in graveyards and rooftops and 
um, do support ourselves for just food at the mar market by going to a, a bar and sketching people's portraits for like two bucks a shot. Wow, oh, that's amazing! And um, you know, it's kind of caricatures. Yeah, and yeah. Did you have Woody Gu Guthrie just on repeat? Completely like over and <laughs> yeah. over and over. Yeah, Woody Guthrie, uh, Charles Corralt, John nice. Steinbeck, and Steinbeck, all those guys yeah. inspired us. But you know, no one, to our knowledge, had done this with a sketchbook. So we thought, you know, let's discover America. So we worked our way across America. We uh, um, at one point, actually, we got kicked off at gunpoint um, uh, in Willard, o Ohio. By the Bulls? No, these were the cops from Willard, because they saw us flying a kite off the top of this three-car <laughs> auto carrier. Because <laughs> you can tie your bootlaces together and make a little kite out of cardboard, and yeah. it'll fly pretty well. And, uh, but they spotted that, and they, so they kicked us off, and, and we had to drive the rest of the way in, a, in a, one of those auto drive-away services to, to go all the way to New York. We wanted to get to oh. New York. I was like, where'd you get the car? Yeah. Well, you know those, those things where you can drive something for just the price of the gas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What they yeah. gave us was a Conrail official vehicle that had the uh, railroad wheels you could lower down. And oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's so they had like a actually, cherry and a spotlight. Yeah, that you can actually wow. drive on the tracks. So did you drive on the tracks? Well, we considered it. We thought that might be kind of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but we did pull over a few people with the, with the spotlight oh, and, yeah. and the spinning light. <laughs> now, did you know, because um, <laughs> I, I have a lot of graffiti writer friends from all over the country, and what we used to do is we would paint... Uh, a, 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 a freight train in one area of the country and we would call our friends up in the other area the uh, other part of the country and say hey I just painted uh, oh. a Conroe or I painted a Pacific you know, this or that and they would know they had the schedule and they would sit out so I've had friends who painted something in New Jersey or wow. Philly, and their friends caught it in Montana. And they spotted it. And they and spotted then, it. So they they know the whole. They knew the like whole a database. track work. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you have the database? We would but, just ask the the conductor or the caboose guy and say which cars are getting set out, and they'd said, "Well, the last fourteen are getting set out in the middle of the desert. You don't want to be on those." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It was, it was hot. I mean, it was not air conditioned, so our tennis shoes the, were melting. So we were oh, sliding on melting rubber on, on across <laughs> some steel plates. So did you know that? Eventually Eventually, obviously, we want to get, you know, we want to go to the East Coast and not to Canada. Yeah, we wanted something. to get to New York because, uh, so we drove this, this truck, we, we got to New York, and um, we wanted to write a book about sketching. So we figured, what's the best art instruction publisher? Watson Guptill, so, because they wrote all the books, they sure. did all the books we like, so. This is like a great adventure movie. Yeah, <laughs> well, we, we tried sleeping on rooftops on 72nd Street. We'd go up the stairway until you could go out on the roof. But you know the door would lock us yeah. out there if we if we didn't put like a piece of cardboard on the latch. We thought that's too dangerous. If someone <laughs> comes up to walk their dog or something, we could be locked out on the roof. So yeah. we tried various places. We tried sleeping in Central Park, and that wasn't too great. So we ended up um, back then. Central yeah, Park yeah, must yeah. have been a scary yeah, ride. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Back when they're finding like dead chickens. <laughs> <laughs> we were um, finding worse than dead chickens. <laughs> yeah, we actually almost got jumped once. But anyway, we we. Um, <laughs> Went on this, there was this burnt out pier on like about 59th Street or so that had a burnt out section and this long plank. So we walked out there and it figured we were safe, we'd pull up the drawbridge. And we had all these sketches we were ready to show. We had actually talked the receptionist into giving us a meeting with a top editor at, at uh, Watson Guptill. What I didn't realize is the tide comes up in the Hudson. Yeah. Oh, no. And I looked down because I had stored my backpack oh. under the, the bottom floorboards and it was just completely awash. The, uh, oh, and the, all the sketches. The peanut were... butter and honey thing. Like, <laughs> it's, 
even more solid. The sketches, <laughs> like markers, were like dissolving. Oh no! And uh, fortunately, we had sent Xeroxes back to our family, and they they FedExed them or overnighted them to us for the meeting just in time. Oh my god! So they, what was it like going to that meeting? Were you like these? You know, <laughs> these aren't the real ones. These aren't the real, real ones. They're really they're <laughs> yeah. a lot better than this. But how did you walk into that meeting? Well, we had like all these sketches, and uh, we had even tape recordings of some of the people we had met. Uh, so we would play the tape recordings. Like there was this one guy. This is Bud the Hobo. <laughs> this is this guy in Nashville that said, um, "I'm a I'm a Dillinger." I said, "Like the bank robbery." He says, "Yeah, that's there's relatives of mine, but draw me with a mustache." I said, "Why?" He said. I don't want the cops to see me. <laughs> I don't want them to spot me. And they said, um, can you get a, a Thompson? I said, what's a Thompson? He said, you know, a Tommy gun. A Tommy said, gun. No, I don't really have one with me. Did he have like a cape and a, like an old yeah, style mustache? Like yeah, or like get him like one of the bowling ball bombs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we met all kinds of really amazing characters. And a lot of the guys who, are, uh, who ride the rails are uh, philosophers and well-educated people have left a, a busy life, you know, and uh, all your pals from Berkeley. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've actually met some really, really just interesting, nutty, and beautiful people when we used to like do, you know, jump on freight trains and go into these crazy places. And I mean, if you're ever interested in hearing an amazing story. Those are the type of people you want to yeah. just meet. You I've even rec recovered some of the old uh, cassette tapes and, and converted them to digital. There was one lady who was an Inca, said she was an Inca princess, and I did her portrait. And <laughs> these other lowriders and uh, who were you know talking about their cars and stuff. And, then, and so I put them on them as YouTube videos with the portrait and then their voice. Oh, that's so Because cool. it makes the portrait come oh, alive. Wow. What is that under on YouTube? How um, do people find that? I'm not sure. Uh, what's that one called? The one of the with the lowrider guys. Santa Monica, Santa Monica Locos, that's what we call Santa Monica. <laughs> so you walked into the meeting with these tapes and we were... Well, so they, uh, they were interested, but you know, it took a while to get to the contract stage, uh, partly because we looked sort of outlandish. We had these matching <laughs> uniforms that said Jim and Tom, we got it at like, used gas station <laughs> uniform. And we got these like uh, butch haircuts. To um, you know, just to try to look normal in the middle of America, but it, it looked kind of weird, I think, to the pub, to the editor. But um, <laughs> but they liked the presentation, and, and we sent some page layouts and a uh, a plan for the book uh, after we got home, and they liked it, and so we ended up doing the book. It was a huge effort because we were also um, got a job working doing background paintings, and I know Tony, you had done some background paintings too. Yeah, and and so that was for Ralph Bakshi. For Bakshi, and yeah, did you guys both work for we, Bakshi? We both, we both did. went in together and got got hired, and yeah, worked there for a little while. It was it was a wild ride. Yeah, Which, was that Mighty Mouse or no? It's post Mighty Mouse. Post. So he was uh, he was kind of trying to come back after there was a lull after Mighty Mouse, yeah. where I think. He had gotten kind of booted off. I think there was some stuff that he got in trouble for on Mighty Mouse. Uh, Mighty Mouse might have like stomped on some flowers that became powder and then sniffed them. Oh. And became <laughs> yeah. super strong, and so he got booted from the air for a long time. And oh. uh, this was sort of going to be his triumphant return, like his comeback. Uh, so he was working to develop something for the Cartoon Network, and that's what we were there oh, for. Okay. So we were doing character design and and backgrounds and stuff. Yeah. So I was still in college, and I was. I was, you know, my, Ted actually told me about it, so I went with him. And he's like, yeah, you're both hired. Show up tomorrow. So I would tell my teachers at school, like, I'm going to go work with Ralph Bakshi for a little bit. And they're like, bring, bring the work in. That'll be your homework. 
I was like, cool. Wow. So we'd go and do some of that stuff. And you'd show up with like no teeth, no hair. He'd be like, well, when the meeting, when we have the meeting, I'll put my teeth in my hair. <laughs> <laughs> but he was hysterical, really oh, funny yeah. guy. To, How did, so was it was this out in California where you no, were? No, this was in New York. York. New York. Yeah, okay. he set up an office. Yeah. We'd have to like leave with the trash every day and throw yeah. it in Take a dumpster. Take the trash outside. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, all right. And what kind of quota gorilla. were you working at? What was that? How many, how many paintings did you have to do a week? At that time, I don't remember, but he was. We just, were doing development. We were so doing development, like, so it was like whatever. Yeah. He was, at that point, he was what just about trying you? to develop a, a bunch of new stuff. But you were on, you were on, um, on, you were working on Fire and Ice, right? I mean, you must have had to yeah, do Fire like. Yeah, Fire and Ice was was the one that's a kind of sword and sorcery barbarian film that uh, Frank Frazetta co-produced. Yeah. yeah. Was so he the two a hero of those guys, of yours they were already, there. Or? I, I knew about his work, and uh, I became more aware of it once he once he uh, I got involved in this project, yeah. and I loved it. It was yeah. fantastic, and and both of those guys were you know from Brooklyn, Tuck, yeah. you know, and they were uh, very it was very lively. Ralph would just shout in the. Um, uh, intercom system, you know, coffee. We'll get, we'll get to work, slaves. But he, a great guy, and, and I still keep in touch with him. And oh, really? I, I really admired him for standing up to the perception of animation as being a children's yeah. medium. Yeah, and he did he, all through his whole career. Still is. He know? really changed yeah. it all. He was the guy who was like, "This is this is a form of art, and it's a form of filmmaking. Yeah, it's not like a cartoon." And that's all we talk about. I mean, he also with, stood up to. I mean, not that Disney is necessarily such a bad thing, but he really stood up to that as being like the only thing that animation can be, and it's got to be from this big studio. And he was doing animated movies. On, yeah. he was the only person to do that. So it was, um, it was a big project. You know, we were doing uh, about six hundred paintings over for a year and a half or so. Wow. It ended up being about. A, I think about 11 paintings a week. Wow. And some of them were establishing shots. Other ones were quicker yeah, paintings. Yeah. But uh, working in cartoon color, so it's like an opaque acrylic. Oh, yeah. yeah. The same stuff they use on animation. Yeah, we did, I worked a little bit with that. You were, it's, you're it's, painting on what? Canvas? On or? an illustration board. An illustration board. Yeah, so the, this is a rotoscope film. And a rotoscope is, you know, has its pluses and minuses. Right, but, he was... Yeah. But you'd have a live-action soundstage shot, and then uh, you'd have all the contact points the character would do, and then you'd... Um, paint a volcano or a jungle or a ice cave. But what I loved about that was, you know, you'd go into the dailies after doing a whole sequence and you'd see the characters swinging on the vines you had just painted and you'd see different angles on it and it, it really felt like you were living inside the world you were painting. Hmm. And that's what, what Howard Pyle had said, something I ran across when I was young, the, the idea that he would tell his students to jump through the picture plane and live inside the picture. Uh -huh. And as you know, doing that kind of work, you, you, you really feel like you're inside, inside the painting. Yeah, yeah. so much of what I think we talk about as when we're teaching here at the Grand Central is, uh, is about kind of trying to get yourself into that zone where, you know, whatever you're painting, even if, it, you know, if it's animation, obviously, but also just if you're painting somebody, if you can kind of merge the real thing, the real person, the real subject, and your painting and yeah. until the barrier kind of breaks down. It's like an incredible state to find yourself it's in. It's like and the Pygmalion thing where the yeah. stuff comes <laughs> yeah. to life, yeah. How long, how long were you on Fire and Ice? Uh, it for? was um, a couple years. A couple years yeah. of just, just And then the, the artist guide to sketching we were doing on weekends, and we, we told Ralph, actually, we said, we, we need to restructure our schedule so that we could have we want to work like 10 hour days for four days a week and three day, three day weekends. Uh, but he thought we were quitting. We were telling him, he says, I know, I know how to get guys to take your life. And uh, <laughs> after <laughs> yeah. I think he was just joking. We said, don't worry, but Ralph. Maybe we're, not. We're, we're, we're with you all the way to the end. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was kind of this, on the one hand, the day job was pure imagination, living inside this, this imaginary world. And then the weekend job was going out and discovering uh, America and yeah. architecture and people and animals. And we were doing um, a, lot of, a lot of different kinds of subjects and, and a lot of different media. You know, I was, I was experimenting, but I still, I mean, I got my painting mileage mainly from working, uh, doing backgrounds. Because up until that point, I hadn't worked in color or painting that much. And, and that was a chance to really learn to paint and just right. to make it automatic. Mm. Was there a purpose for the sketch? Like, did you see the sketching? I mean, obviously you had the book, but was there, were you trying to, was the sketching trying, or were you have, trying to have the sketching lead you in some direction, or was it trying to build to something, or was it simply about investigating life and understanding it? I, I think it was then and, and still is now kind of a, an excuse for, uh, having contact with the world, for meeting people, for getting into weird situations. I mean, and Jeanette and I sketch in places like uh, we, with the Metropolitan Opera. We were sketching in the front row, in, and wow. I had a suit on and a white shirt and a black brush pen. And I dropped the cap of the brush pen, and I went, oh, "No!" And I, because I had this like this little kill my shirt if I touch oh, the yeah. brush to it. So I'm feeling around with my foot for the cap, you know, in the middle. And finally, I've, there it is, you know. So I wait till the break, and I kind of get on my hands and knees. To find the cap again. You're an avid sketch. I mean, you never stop sketching. Yeah, I mean, it's you were sketching when we were setting up. Even you busted out the book for a second. It's yeah, right there. Jeanette is sketching we, right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been like uh, lately. I've been out there sketching. This is a oh, wow, showing them a snow snowy scene. field. Uh, this is out there showing um, us a really nice uh, a snowscape that, that, that I did near gosh? where we live. This is at a horse ranch. But um, uh, the thing with that is that I was experimenting with different additives I could put in the gouache to get to go below freezing and I tried vodka in the water and that works okay in the water but then on the brush it freezes it on the brush oh. so uh, so I have to go to oil when it gets below freezing that's such a great <laughs> idea that's beautiful but now me, after, I mean, I'm sorry I'll just to answer your question I mean I think um, the sketching is kind of the, the chance to um, get my raw material for my studio paintings and I think that's a lot of my heroes like uh, you know Frederick Church mm -hmm. or Asher Durand or, or any of the academic guys, Golden Agers, would, they, they wouldn't sell their plein air stuff. They would use it in their studio. It was like a catalog, yeah. an inventory. Exactly. And it's, it's your source for all of your studio stuff. Mm. Yeah. And so then did that, did all of your sketching lead you, maybe this is jumping ahead too much, to the Dinotopia books or... Kind of, because Dinotopia is presented in the form of, a, of an explorer's sketchbook. Right. And for those who don't know what Dinotopia is, it's a, an illustrated uh, book that uh, takes you to an island where dinosaurs never went extinct. Um, but we should probably, if, unless, if you want to get to that in just Fill a second. Fill in a little bit. Okay. Uh, what, what Frizetta introduced me to was the idea of doing paperback covers. So oh, after yeah. I left Bakshi, I started freelancing from L.A. doing paperbacks and then also freelancing for National Geographic. So I did that through the 80s. And that was a big business back then. There was a lot of uh, uh, demand for, like, for the paperback covers. Yeah. That's a, it's sad. I mean, that's an industry that's dried up. Yeah, there's still some of it out there, but it, it, it was certainly in the 70s and 80s, it was the last kind of bastion of the golden age where you were given a, um, a manuscript and you're given a lot of freedom to come up with sketches and, and then do a realist painting. Right. And in science fiction, you could really paint... You really had to paint all kinds of things, you know, spacecraft and dragons and dinosaurs, and basically everything under the sun. So that's really what caught your interest is science fiction covers? Yeah, yeah. So I did a lot of those. You know, I think the illustration also, it kind of saved modern realistic 
you know, realism because that was the information being passed on to the next generation where the, for realism was via the, the illustrator. So it was from golden age on, those are the people who are really keeping the tradition alive. Otherwise it might've just gone away. Yeah. I mean, there's, I know we're all interested in kind of how that thread, how that knowledge has been passed yeah. down. I mean, because before the internet, it was like the secret knowledge you try to track down. And, <laughs> and I think you're right, Tony, that, um, for me, I, I tried to make contact with uh, some of the older illustrators mm -hmm. whose work I had admired. They were still alive, like Tom Lovell, who did a lot yeah. of paintings for National Geographic and had worked all through the, the Slick Magazine area and the Pulps before that. Yeah. And, and he gave me some pointers and, and uh, you know, gave me uh, some feedback that really meant a lot to me. I Almost think, like a mentorship a little bit. Yeah. But it, you know, back to what I was saying about going to the Society of Illustrators, I remember going upstairs in the bar, and they would have the line deckers and the Maxfield Parish mm -hmm. and the Rockwells and all that stuff. And I mean, they're still some of my favorite work. Oh, those, yeah. Those, those, those early illustration guys, like Howard Pyle and N.C. Wyeth, all those guys were just like heroes once I found out who they were and what they were doing. And then once I found that they were the one kind of passing on the tradition from you know where they learned it that's what brought me to 19th century painting and then from 19th oh. century painting further back but it was really the illustrators that did it for me ted how did you find your way back to the 19th century tradition you know the 19th century actually i mean i had uh, when i was younger i was really interested in renaissance art and i think I, that interest never never died down but uh then it was actually Tony who introduced me to 19th century painting when we were met in a train tunnel and we start talking about classical art <laughs> and he starts mentioning names like Jerome and Bouguereau who I'd never heard of. It was hard uh, to find stuff on them back well, then. Well, really you know, hard. I had taken great art history classes or at least art history classes that were considered great and there was no mention of these guys in there. I mean, these guys, Bouguereau was like the superstar of yeah. Paris. I mean, he, he, you couldn't not know him, I think, in, in 19th century Paris, but you know, in 20th century New York, you wouldn't hear a nobody. peep about him. Yeah. And so then Tony introduced me, he also introduced me to your Dinotopia books. Oh, I um, did? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also good, to, uh, you know, like Steve Assell's. Yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> Tony totally, I started to look at Steve Assell's uh, romance cover. Did you hunt down those Sotheby's auction catalogs? Yeah, I yeah. used to do that. Aren't those great? Yeah. yeah, you go, wow, there's another one I've never seen. You know, I mean, I never, it never even occurred to me to go to Sotheby's. I mean, now I go to, you know, I go to a lot of those. I think you were at one today, weren't you at one of those auctions? No, no we didn't have time to do that, though. yeah. But those are great. They're I mean, you, fantastic. And you're allowed to touch the. You can go and touch a sergeant. You could just touch it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of try and channel the awesomeness. Yeah, exactly. So when you were illustrating, is that something that? All right, this is what I want to do now. I just want to illustrate. Uh, or was it still the idea that? So you know, I'm going to illustrate, but then I'm going to go out and meet real people and paint real things. Well, the. The National Geographic work um, took me on location, and that's something you asked about earlier. Yeah. Um, because back in the 80s, they would send their illustrators on location to work on an archaeological story. So I worked on two stories, uh, the Etruscans in Italy, and then a, a story on first century Palestine. So we were looking at the Roman world, uh, the world that Jesus would have oh, yeah. lived in, and, uh, based on a site in Sepphoris. Mm -hmm. um, and so we saw, this was about 1987, we had a, a new baby uh, at home that Jeanette was looking after. <laughs> And, uh, but this was like, a, I'd never really been anywhere around the Mediterranean in my life before. So I saw Rome and Athens and Jerusalem and all these great old sites and 
blew me away completely. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, we went down into a tomb in Tarquinia, which is one of the painted tombs of the Etruscans yeah. that had just recently been discovered. It was called the Blue Devil Tomb. And amazing painted murals of, of monsters and devils. Fresco? Uh, which or? is unli un unusual for the Etruscans. And um, it, was, it was kind of spooky. We took a, a ladder down there and we had our flashlights and we heard this like digging sound. Like, we thought, what the heck is that? And it turned out there was someone digging a grave above us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but some grave robbers had gotten to this place before us and they'd cleared all the stuff out, all the chariots and the pottery and stuff. So what we had to do is go to the archaeology museums to look for similar kinds of artifacts that would have been found in similar kinds of tombs and then try to reconstruct what would have been there. So, you know, you start with what's known, what the archaeologists find, and then, you, and then your job is to try to evoke what the world would have looked like 700 BC. Wow. So it was really like a lot like what the history painters were doing. And so I, that's why, of course, I loved um, uh, all Pointer and, and um, you know, Jerome. Oh, yeah. and, that was like the highest form of art in the you know in the 19th century was those history paintings yeah. and those guys yeah and uh, and you know everything I've read about what it was like for the academic painters you know they they were doing all the cast drawings and the figure studies but it was all building up to the pre to Rome competition yeah yeah and you if you got if you passed the test and got to be one of the finalists you know about the unloge competition where you would be put in a cloistered little room with nothing in there no books no references. <laughs> yeah. And they could pick any subject, which you didn't know what it would be, uh, out of the Bible, yeah. the uh, classical history, uh, or mythology. I mean, that's a lot of stuff you'd have to be ready with. Yeah. And it was like Iron Chef. Yeah. They just undo <laughs> it, and they're so like, ah, oh, shark fins. So, so you'd have... Okay, so this is, a, this is a, a basically a, co a sketch competition. It's a competition. Okay. And if you win this, you get to do the final painting, and then... Um, and then you get sent to Rome. The prize is you get to live in Rome for a few years. I see. And that was that's and if you got if if you did all that as a as a student, it basically made you as an artist. You yeah. got all the, the commissions. It's pretty much yeah. like you became like a right. rock, like instant rock star in that world. Yeah. You know, and, and, and when I've been fascinated by learning more about the academic process and what and, and the training is, and I think this is kind of almost like the missing piece or the most difficult thing to figure out how to deliver to students is is how do you teach people to imagine a scene and then execute it? You know, how, where, does the ideas, where do the ideas come from? Yeah. For people who want to be concept artists or character designers or animation designers mm -hmm. uh, or fantasy painters. And uh, I think illustration masterclass is one, one place that, that uh, does that very well. I think they do that really well. And it's something that I've thought about um, <clears throat> even with the, with the school here is how do we maybe you know, develop a class where when something isn't in front of you and how do you develop that? And it's Yeah, and you could build out a clay or Sculpey or cardboard or anything. But I think, too, if a school has uh, a collect, to me, the ideal art school has all the stuff you guys have here. Plus, it has to have a, um, a costume collection, yeah. uh, an animal skeleton collection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least a basic you know, cat, dog, horse, you know, some stuff like that. And, uh, and some... You know, some basic props, armor, and, and uh, you know, a few weapons and stuff. And whatever yeah. you, you we would love armor and weapons. <laughs> armor and weapons can go bad. Yeah, it makes but, the study breaks more interesting. Yes. <laughs> so when you were in Italy... Going back to Jerome and people dying in the studio. <laughs> yeah. So when you were in Italy, um, the idea of... Uh, did you have to sketch very quickly? Did you have to paint very quickly while you were there to kind of... I kind of put the two together by, you know, thinking... I was doing the... The paintings for Geographic, the science fiction covers, the sketching, and then I thought to myself, well, 
you know, all these archaeologists, when you talk to them around the campfire, they all say, I, I want to find the next lost city, you know, next Troy or Machu Picchu or something like that. And I thought, well, I can always paint something like that. I could paint lost cities, lost worlds, because I'd, I'd always dreamed about that. So I did a few paintings. One of them was Waterfall City. One of them was Dinosaur Parade, which is the cover of the Dinotopia yeah, book. Sure. So it's a picture of kids and dinosaurs going through a Roman-style city. That's the one I saw at the Society of Illustrators. Yes. <laughs> that was one that I was like, this Amazing, and that one is up in the show in Stamford, Connecticut. Stamford, right Connecticut. Now. Yeah, we were we were able to reacquire that painting, and we put a, a really had a frame builder, uh, Troy Stafford. Oh, he's built great. A Troy tabernacle is frame yeah. uh, on there, so it's it's an old style tabernacle frame that fits it. But um, but that painting was really what kind of got me started with the idea of an island of people and dinosaurs. First, there were these separate um, lost world images. So they started. Sorry to interrupt, but just as just images, it wasn't. Yeah. You were just doing them, be just, like, hey, I'm just, just a big kind of like production paintings, establishing shots, and I, you know, I was aware of the fact that the special effects era of the Star, the early Star Wars films, there were certain things that they had a hard time pulling off. One of them was big water effects because you can't miniaturize water very yeah, well, yeah. and and the other one was people riding creatures. You know, they had a hard time with the Hoth stuff, you know, <laughs> um, to make it really real. So I thought I'll just do all these scenes of things that could never be made into a live action film. <laughs> Um, so, but then I, I drew a map and I thought, oh, you know, why not just put all of these places on this, on this map and tell it from the point of view of an explorer who's shipwrecked on this island. So that's really where the, the idea for the book came from. It sounds incredibly organic, like it just sort of one thing led to another, led to another. And... It seems like that in retrospect, but then when you're in the middle of it, it's complete confusion, like you don't know where anything's <laughs> going to lead you. And that, but I think that's... That's why I tell students, just follow what you love doing. Right. Just, well, it sounds it's like, insane and non-commercial. Yeah, it sounds like this is this perfect synthesis of your archeo archaeological studies in college and then the illustration and the sketching and you're putting it all together into this one like perfect synthesis. But, but it was kind of crazy because, you know, we didn't have, uh, we had two kids in diapers by now and um, I had to tell all my clients that I'm... Um, not going to be doing any jobs for them for the next three years because I had to do 150 paintings. So at this point, you were like, I'm going to continue this idea. And I'm at this point, you had the foresight to say, oh, I, I want to make a book out of it. I, I met a guy named Ian Ballantyne, who is the publisher of ba the founder of Ballantyne and Bantam Books. And he yeah. published Lord of the Rings and, Fra if you remember, Fairies and Gnomes. Sure, sure. Uh, and he looked at those paintings and, and he realized, too, that there's a book here. But he said, it's got to have scope. It's got to be, you know, 150, 160 pages. Yeah. It can't just be a 32-page picture book. Right. And he was right, you know, because that's what makes you feel like you're immersed in the world. So, but that when that meant um, I had to finance uh, doing all this artwork with art prints and selling some originals and, you know, and we had a, we had house payments and it was it was you know it was oh tricky. God. What year was this? Or this was uh, starting 1990 or so. The book came out in '92. That must yeah. have been terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible risk to take. And dinosaurs weren't that popular. I mean, Jurassic Park had a film that came out a year after the Dinotopia. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, so it was. Uh, it well, was, I think Dinotopia actually had definitely something to do with the popularity of dinosaurs. I think things like Jurassic Park, but I would absolutely put in Dinotopia with with an influence of like the the craze of dinosaurs. It was neat because I, I worked with a lot of paleontologists to try to make the dinosaurs as accurate as I could. I mean, of course, they're sentient creatures in, sure. in the story, but but I wanted to base them on on current science. And right. One of the guys in Washington uh, who's a dinosaur paleontologist, Mike Brett Sermon, uh, helped me out, 
And uh, we had this idea of having the oviraptors. These are the dinosaurs that were always thought to be the ones who steal the eggs from the other, other dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Have them in charge of the, the egg hatchery. <laughs> and so the oviraptors look like they're really nice characters. They look after them. And it turned out uh, later on that when they looked at this, this fossil where, uh, that they had originally looked at that made them think that oviraptors stole other dinosaurs' eggs, that they was actually protecting its own eggs and it was a good guy after all. <laughs> science following art. Um, so but, were you, did you have access uh, to museums and and fossils and all the information you wanted, or did yes. you kind of start making up a lot of stuff? Well, I mean, I, I when it came to the dinosaurs, I went to the museums, looked at the trackways and the fossils, and talked to the scientists and tried to, you know, and this was before they really found a lot of stuff with feathers on them. Oh right, and, uh, yeah. So yeah. Recently, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of changes in how we see dinosaurs. But I think at that point, are you going to go back and amend any? No, we're not going to do. A, <laughs> Overlays. But this was right about the time when our view of dinosaurs was changing. I mean, I think when I was a kid, that we thought of dinosaurs as lizards, uh, lizards cold-blooded, sort of stupid uh, failures, you know. But this now, was the Flintstones era. <laughs> yeah. But after the science, really, I think Jack Horner and Bob Bakker and a lot of other guys, John Ostrom, kind of changed that view. They're warm-blooded, dynamic creatures. So it made sense. Right in Dinotopia to have them um, much more uh, compassionate or more warm-blooded, more intelligent, mm -hmm. and, and to form a partnership with the humans. So it's, it's a fun concept to play with. So did you, have, um, did you have writing partners, or did you just sit down and say, not only do I have to make a certain amount of paintings to fill this book, but I have to write the story? Yeah, I wrote. Uh, I had written a lot of nonfiction before, but not a whole lot of fiction. So I, you know, I read everything I could about writing, and and uh, the way that it worked for me to, to develop the story was to do a, about a 15-page outline and then a really detailed storyboard, the way an animation yeah. company would plan an animated film. Then do the final artwork in, in order, and then do the final text for, that, for each page layout. So the writing was, the actual writing was fairly fast at the end, um, but it all came from the same place imaginatively, really. Yeah, and uh, they reminded me, uh, they reminded me um, of like Al Matadama paintings. You know, and I didn't know if that was something, you know, some of the art you looked at. Oh, yeah, you can see the influence of, like, Spring, which was at the uh, J. Paul Getty yeah. Museum. And one of those paintings, like, you know, the Daughters of King Lear, the, the, uh, or a lot of abbeys, you know, where they, the museums don't know where to put them, so they put them in the hallway oh, of the yeah, gift yeah. shop, and now they're getting their pride of place. But, but back then, we'd have to hunt around, where's Spring? You know? Or make an appointment to go see them in the storage. Yeah, you're familiar with that, the big vertical painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one influenced all the Cecil B. DeMille movies, too. Really? Yeah, yeah. That, that one painting has influenced probably more films than anything. Wow. Um, you also had a, uh, you had a dinosaur named after you, a fossil. Yeah, yeah was that was, I was amazed to hear that. It's an amazing a, honor. It's a, a dinosaur that's uh, one of the biggest meat eaters in Europe. So it, it's a carnivore. badass dinosaur. Yeah. And I would have been happy with some kind of modest little sea slug or something. A little herbivore. A Torvosaurus gurdii. <laughs> but they gave you a big predator. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> For a mild-mannered guy like me. Like, what is the name of this dinosaur? Torvosaurus gurnii. Nice. How did, they, how, did they, how did you get the info, the, the news or... Um, the paleontologist told me about it, told me he was going to do that, and uh -huh. just wanted to know how I felt. And I told him I was thrilled, you know. And uh, had he seen your books, or yeah, he grew up with the books. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> and where did they find where did they find the Voss? Like, where's the one of the main Portugal? Portugal. It's, yeah, it's, but it's it's found all through Europe. 
Portuguese it's a very specific, um, a specific type of Torvosaurus. I was thinking about you that last year I was in, um, I was in Patagonia and we were down on the Chile side and we were mountain climbing and we were in like the middle of nowhere. And our guide was telling us that about two and a half hours, you know, that way they, that's where they unearthed one of the largest, um, fossils. Ever. Yeah, yeah. That and Patagonia is really, they found some great it's stuff. incredible. There. I was at the top of um, mountains that were, you know, 12,000 feet high, and there was, um, we were finding sea fossils. Wow. And so you were just hiking, or were you painting up there? No, see, we were, we were hiking. I wasn't with painters, and it was one of those, um, I wouldn't say it's a blown opportunity, because I'm going back. And yeah. actually, I've talked to Ted, I've talked to people, and we were trying to plan a painting trip down there, and you know, if you want to go, oh, no, <laughs> it would be, be a big honor to, <laughs> for you to come to, down. To, um, to do the kind of stuff that the 19th century guys, I would think of Frederick Church painting the oh icebergs God, yeah. and renting a boat and going up there and yeah. I mean, fighting the stories of that, like with him, just a stack of cam- uh, paper canvases, and he's just like knocking out yeah. sketches of these icebergs. I was reading about Sanford Gifford, who went to Europe um, with, uh, I think he went with Durand and and some of the other guys from the Hudson River School. He spent a whole summer doing these beautiful little oil studies, but he kind of stacked them together before they were fully dry, (laughs) and they they, they kind of formed a brick, (laughs) and they had to chuck them all out. You wouldn't think Gifford would make such a rookie mistake. Yeah, really. (laughs) He doesn't know about the cork that you put in Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The technology was more basic. I mean, you think about someone like Durand in in the 1830s when he would go painting in the White Mountains, where you guys have the fellowship uh, with with Cole, and they would say, they would write to each other before they went, they said, okay, who's going to stop at the butcher shop to pick up the pig bladders? Because that's how they stored the paint. the paint, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the, these things would rupture, and they would smell bad after a while, and <laughs> and uh, they they suffered a lot more than we do. Some of them, but then some of like there was the uh, the old Catskill Mountain House, this like really fancy hotel, and there was a train stop right near it, and. What you come to realize is that these guys weren't hiking as much as just hopping off the train <laughs> yeah, and painting true. from this this very luxurious hotel. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There were the ladies with the big dresses and the walkways. <laughs> All those areas, you know, like Catterskill Falls had wooden walkways going behind the falls. And up they and did down. have wooden walkways. Yeah, they're all gone now. Well, the, falls, the DEC took them out. They had uh, they had like engineered them. They they had like. Uh, I don't know, messed around with the water flow so that they could actually make the flow you know, really intense when they had viewers and then they could dam it up and then they'd, they'd remove the dam, I guess, yeah. to, to create this huge waterfall for, you know, for a show. It was kind of like Vegas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when you were creating, I just want to, I'm fascinated by the creation of Dinotopia. When you, you know, had the foresight and you now dedicated, what was it, three years of your life, you said? Well, the first book was, yeah, it was about two and a half years. So did you have a publisher who said they would look at it, or were you like, I'm just going to do these and start shopping it around? I did uh, about 25 pages of finished artwork, the full storyboard and outline, uh, and those 25 pages were all laid out uh, in finished spreads. Mm-hmm. So it was enough to get a feel of what the book would be like. And uh, we took that around, uh, and f- actually a few different publishers wanted to do it. Um, but we ended up going with Turner Publishing, mm-hmm. uh, with part of Turner Broadcasting, a little boutique publisher. And it was a good publisher for Dinotopia because it didn't have like a big children's book division. It was just a little publisher. So they gave it all their support and marketed it as a picture book for adults, really. It wasn't, it wasn't it marketed I mean, as a children's book. 
Yeah. And some librarians have told me that there really aren't enough picture books for older readers because there's this whole idea of how we bring kids into the world of books with picture books to lure them in. Yeah. And then we're supposed to wean them from pictures to read chapter books. Pull the rug out from under and, their feet. I mean, there's comics and graphic novels. Well, graphic novels to, that's yeah. The graphic novels is the one category of publishing that's growing right now, yeah. print publishing. Um, but uh, I think there's a real opportunity for people who are artists who want to tell stories, to, to tell visual books. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm a real believer in that. I know uh, Ian Ballantyne was also. How did you divide your time between, hey, I'm going to put a lot of time into this painting, but I need to make up more pages yeah. you know, in this you know, relatively short amount of time to create? Well, that's book. what it was like. I, I would set a quota. I guess no one was telling me when I had to turn stuff in. I just had to have the overall target deadline. But I'd do about 10 book pages a month. Wow. Uh, so if I had a more ambitious establishing shot, I have to spend more time on that and then speed things and then speed up. Speed up on the yeah. other ones. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of quick, sketchy ones that are done with pencil on illustration board with uh, oil wash. It looks a lot like watercolor. In the That's what I thought. Yeah. But it's actually oil. It's uh, it's thinned down with terps. And then the if anyone wants to try this technique, you have to seal the board with uh, acrylic matte medium. Uh, so that it doesn't soak in. Oh yeah, I've done that with paper, painting on paper yeah. with acrylic matte medium. What I found actually was, I painted on gray paper, it was a, a blue-gray, and the acrylic matte medium, the paper, the color changed, faded, and then I used oh. uh, a different, uh, I think Gamblin's PVA size, and it didn't seem to... Uh, didn't have that, didn't change the color as yeah. much. Yeah. And I actually think it was actually, I don't think it was necessarily exposure to light, I think it was actually the matte medium interacting with the Chemical, dye and chemically the maybe yeah. chemically yeah yeah and i think uh, bierstadt did a lot of his uh outdoor studies on paper it was what did he use to shield he was must have used shellac i think it was a shellac, shellac, shellac used, maybe i think it was a shellac base or something like that some sort of I think either a, a rabbit skin glue or a shellac. And they were all that size, like a 13 by 19, because that's what fit inside his, his box. That's how all those yeah. guys would have worked, is they would have worked with the box the, in the shot lab. boxes. And it was just like a, like a paint box with a lid that opens up, and then you'd paint inside the lid. Trost Richards worked that, and I know you're oh, a big yeah. fan of him, too. Yeah. Uh, so you explore... Go ahead. How big were the Dinotopia paintings? They were about maybe 30% bigger than printed size. Okay. So maybe 14 square. Some of the bigger, you yeah. know, like Dinosaur Parade is two feet by four feet, which mm -hmm. is pretty big for me. But that was the first, and that was not really, uh, you weren't thinking, I mean, you weren't necessarily thinking about a book at that point. You were just trying to make a painting. Right? Trying to make a painting and also to do it as an art print, because art prints were still going mm -hmm. pretty strong then. And I, I wanted to... Um, to do some images which stood outside the narrative, you know, didn't have the characters in them, and wasn't you didn't need to know the story to understand the picture. Right. So there's one called Garden of Hope that has a couple of women walking through a twilight garden, mm -hmm. and uh, and that was just done um, as a, as a separate painting that's part of Dinotopia and fit into the story sort of, but it wasn't really it was a standalone uh -huh. a piece for for prints. And were, were there like distribution networks for prints? Or? Yeah, yeah, there were a couple different companies that were, they were doing uh, art prints, you know, signed and numbered prints. So you'd submit your painting to the company and yeah. then they would... Oh. They would make the prints and right. yeah, they'd go around and sign them and all that, yeah. So when you finished the book and um, gave it to the publisher, it was like, okay, fingers crossed that I'm going to be able to pay yeah. for the last two, three years of my life. Exactly. There's no way of knowing. I mean, with Ian Ballantyne behind it and mm -hmm. his, his reputation, I think it was pretty sure to succeed. And we had a lot, a lot of energy building around it. But really, there have been 
visual books of similar scope and size that have been really well done that have kind of fallen through the cracks sometimes because you're, you're dealing with a market that a bookseller doesn't know where to put it in the store. Yeah, like Barnes & Noble put it in the children's section. Borders put it in the si adult science fiction section. Uh -huh. Yeah. No one knew where to review it. And that could be a bad thing. Yeah, it I could hurt you. Yeah. When I, when I did some, some uh, illustrations for book covers, like, uh, for, um, for covers like that, they would tell me, no, you got to be like this or you got to be like that. Yeah. And not somewhere in between. And yours was a little bit in between. So yeah. how did you get around that? Well, the idea was if, if uh, we could put it in the front of the store before people got to any other sections. You know. <laughs> Get it in the window. Yeah, I mean, Cardboard cutout. Turner also really, really supported the book, and they, they did TV ads, and they did all kinds of stuff like that. So the, the book got noticed, and, and it ended up being published in, I think, 32 countries and 18 languages altogether. Wow. Well, so, the pictures also probably carry, you know, sometimes story doesn't translate as well yeah. culturally, but the pictures do. I mean, the pic that's... You know, it seems like that would lead to a broader kind of audience. And I tried to keep the pictures really dominant on every page spread, you know, because I think it's easier to write a page of text or, to, or story than it is to, to do a picture. It's faster well, to yeah, write. Particularly. But, um, but it's also from the reader's point of view, I, I just like that balance of it. only about one fourth of the page spread is, is words and just to make it really visually driven. Yeah. Mm. So was it an instant success, or did it take a little bit of time? No, it it, it did really well right away. Yeah. And we I've done three sequels. Yeah, not exactly sequels. There are other stories within Dinotopia. What what are they called? Uh, Dinotopia: The World Beneath came out in '95, and then First Flight came out in '99, and then uh, Journey to Chandara, 2007. And what edition print? What mm -hmm. edition are they on now? As far as oh, let's see. Gosh, I don't even know. Uh, we're, we're with the third publisher for Dinotopia. It was first with Turner, then HarperCollins, and now we're with Dover, which is great. They're yeah. a real uh, a good, strong backlist publisher. But it's been done. I mean, it's been redone a bunch of times now. Yeah, I don't even know it's how many. It's been sold, videos. you know. It's, it's run. A, it's a couple million copies or something it's like so that. Amazing. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. So great. But, um, but I didn't know when I was doing it whether it would be a big thing or not. I really didn't. It's just it's yes, a crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> and and go ahead. So then you started a blog. When, when did that happen? Well, after uh, Journey to Chandara, the publisher said, you should do a blog. And this is, you know, again, 2007. So there were people doing blogs. And I said, well, I don't have internet at home. How am I going to do a blog? And, and anyway, I, I had all these notebooks full of stuff that I'd taken down from them, my readings and whatnot. So I thought, well, I can just write it down. On, I, had a, I had a computer for a couple of years, so I, I would write it down, then go to the library and post. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I'll do it as a daily blog. And just like a maniac, I've done it every day since 2007. I mean, so it's about 3,200 posts. <laughs> it just oh, makes, wow. it always makes me feel like I don't have enough energy when I see <laughs> how many and how in-depth you go with such a wide variety of subjects. I mean, some of the posts are, are real lightweight or, or, you know, real easy, but um, Jeanette, while Jeanette's making breakfast is usually when I'm writing the post. Yeah. <laughs> so we proofread it over our oatmeal. <laughs> um, but what I love about the, the blogging, even, you know, the, I don't care how many people are out there, but what's neat is that it's people who really are interested in visual things. Well, and you're and, getting and a And I get a feedback, yeah, yeah. And, and I learn from them. Most of the books I'm reading are ones that people have recommended. So it's, I'm, I'm growing and learning as much as they are. But what's so great about the blog is you're you're not only putting up the posts, but you're heavily involved with answering questions. It just seems like you're you're right there. 
you know, so not only is it like a, an idea of your daily life, thoughts, you know, you go into science, you go into history, and then somebody would say something and then you answer that. It becomes interactive. And that's yeah. like not all that common, especially somebody who's as busy as you are. Well, I mean, people have a lot of really, like one time I was doing a sketch in Gibraltar of a lighthouse, uh, and um, I did a, a, you know, a painting of it on the headland there, and then I posted it, and then I got this instant response that said, oh, I, I used to work in that lighthouse. And we used to always be terrified that a ship would come in a, sto in a storm or foggy night and crash into our lighthouse and, and, and sink us, you know, and knock down the lighthouse. So he's, but he said, you may not have noticed from where you were sitting, but if you just walk over to the headland and look down, you'll see a, a shipwreck right there. Oh, and wow. sure so enough, I didn't notice, yeah, so I walked over there, and sure enough, there was this ship, this huge rotting... <laughs> rusting hulk wow in real time you did this yeah and i mean the guy got on there i don't know how he found that post but um but he got on there and, and like the same day i found found that spot so that was sketch number two so yeah right <laughs> another sketch <laughs> the carcass another the, post yeah <laughs> now did you have an idea of what you wanted the blog to be or did it just form naturally it's just like i i don't really have any specific parameters or mission statements, just whatever interests me at the moment, but it ends up being a lot about academic painting and golden age illustration and also stuff like visual perception and animation and comics yeah. um, and kind of, I guess that's the main beat. No, it's been, a, it's been a really interesting group of people from all over the world, all ages really, and uh, all kinds of backgrounds, but I've learned I'm not, I can't make stuff up because right. I, people They're know the they yeah. catch you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's great. I'm a big fan of the ball. I love it. Thank you. And I mean, that led to doing the books uh, Imaginative Realism and Color and Light because after I got going a while on the blog, I had a lot of stuff on color and I was starting to question, you know, are red, yellow, and blue really the primary colors? Mm -hmm. Or is it cyan and magenta and, or what? Right. You know? And yeah. then, so I wrestled with that for a long time and then I did. I also wanted to talk about you know the process that I had learned from those the old Rockwell books and stuff about painting. How do you paint a picture of something you can't see? Because art school always teaches you how to still lifes and portraits right. and landscapes. And okay, I look at it something or even a photo or whatever. But most of them don't even teach that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're right. But then, uh, but how do I paint something uh, a scene from history or uh, or right. something from my imagination? So that's what I wanted to do a lot of posts about, and that ended up being. Uh, imaginative realism. So did you have an idea for that book and then decided to use the blog as like your time to develop those ideas into the book or were those blog posts going and you all of a sudden saw this string of blog posts and said oh my god I could make a book out of this. I think I realized there was a book there after I was I probably written about 80% of the material for uh -huh. the book. So it was already it out had there. had to be organized blog, right. you know and, and it had to, the voice had to be a little different for the book I suppose but what was neat is from a writer's point of view I knew right away uh, which topics were interesting or not, uh, which ones were confusing. Right, you had already like focus group tested that. Yeah, because you know you could look at how many comments there were, and, and if something was controversial, you'd know about it. And, and if I had to explain something better, I could tell by the kind of questions people were asking. When you were doing, how did that affect your own painting? Just having the blog there and and then creating these books, did it did it enhance your paintings? I think for, for me, I had to think through everything I was doing a little bit more that I might have done intuitively. And I think that's kind of the nature of learning as an artist is that you, you make intuitive things, that you, separate things that you've thought rationally about mm -hmm. or consciously about until you know, when you do are lucky enough to have a flow moment and the painting right. paints itself, it's because all that stuff you thought so hard about is, is internalized and right. deep memory. 
Um, so I don't know if it actually changed the way I painted, but it probably made me more conscious uh, that there's an audience out there uh, that I'm, I, I'm speaking to. Maybe the difference between me and you is that I'm not really necessarily a teacher uh -huh. uh, in a classroom of real people who have different needs. Mm -hmm. I'm probably more of an explainer. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably feeling more natural of, of taking a topic and trying to explain my way through it. Would, which would make you an amazing teacher. <laughs> <laughs> a lecturer, maybe. But I don't know. I think uh, you tell me, but it seems like teaching, you have to be good at psychology and understanding what people need, each person yeah. needs, and They're definitely, you know, what to say, yeah. what not to say to each person. Do you think with the blog, ha it having. Um, itself as this ongoing thing that you think that there's just more books to come? Um, more books, yeah, there's a, probably another book on painting outdoors from life, yeah. uh, sketching and painting, but also there's other new media of um, digital books uh, for the iPad where you can actually go through a sketchbook and see videos and hear the sounds that were happening. It's kind of a multimedia sketch, kind yeah. of, oh, well, yeah. Um, so right now I'm doing a lot of, uh, a lot of videos. Uh, I did um, How I Paint a Dinosaur, which kind of takes you through uh, a scientific illustration I did for Scientific American from start to finish, all the way through sketches and building maquettes and you know priming the board and the whole thing uh, from start to finish. And then I did one on... Um, where, where can we see those videos? Uh, I, have, I have them for you right here. <laughs> but <laughs> but actually, actually, but for the audience. I happen to have my violin. <laughs> no, very good. Um, no, on jamesgurney.com uh, has them. And, um, Are they downloadable? People can just... Uh, yeah, they're also right. as MP4 downloads. And I just yeah. also want to make oh, wow. sure that we did Thank mention you. it's Gurney Journey. Gurney Journey. Gurney yes. Journey. We should plug, plug. do the plugging. Thank you. Tony. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I want to plug as much as we can. And there's one I did on. Uh, I, did, I had an opportunity to do a set of postage stamps. Well, first for the U.S., I did a, a World of Dinosaur stamps, but then I did another set for Australia a couple of years ago, and so they flew me to Australia to go you know, look at the fossils and oh, work. Wow. So I filmed all the whole process of doing that and and reconstructing. Um, the, the dinosaurs for these uh, dinosaur stamps in Australia. So that's what that video is about. And then after that, I did one on uh, watercolor in the wild, about painting outdoors with watercolor. So it's all filmed on location, uh, six different uh, subjects, uh, painted on location and shot in real time. You know what I love uh, that you include in your uh, blog is that you're very open about something you would come across or, or figure out on your own. Something like um, this is how I set up my watercolor, um, you know, uh, set up outside. You should try it. Yeah, except that the thing about a book is it sort of solidifies something, and and with in terms of building actual um, studio gadgets and painting gear, um, the idea keeps changing as it, mm -hmm. as people contribute more yeah. ideas. So yeah. like, it seems like your materials are always evolving. I feel like uh, you've always got some new way. Oh, that's to, the like one I'm showing I see. you guys. Yeah, this is a sketch easel. I'm showing them that's a. Uh, a folding sketchbook uh, pochade or, or easel oh, wow. and it fits so, onto a camera tripod and it folds out uh, using these friction hinges. So Those can, are great hinges. Yeah, and, I, and are, I learned about those from one of the blog readers. Oh, those are on the a la prima pochade boxes. Are they? Okay. Yeah. This is so so like, instead of trying to patent this or something, I just figured I'll just keep it open source and, and make a community and just we'll just share ideas back and forth because um, uh, you know, people have a lot of a lot of good workshop ideas. 
Another thing that thing has, which uh, I can describe a little bit, this is a diffuser the panel. Diffuser. Oh, I saw the that poster fits about on, that. on yeah. top of the, of, the, <laughs> of the little pochat easel that diffuses the light only where you need it, so you don't have the blowdown problems of an umbrella. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that's the number one problem. We're that's passing with we're, magnets. Yes. Yeah. We're passing around the Peshad box. This is so cool. Yeah, yeah, don't put those magnets near the computer, Jay, or it'll erase your hard drive. <laughs> Podcast gone. <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> Welcome to Suggested. <laughs> yeah, let's start over. All right. Do you, uh, do you think you're going to do another Dinotopia book? Probably not, because I, I have other ideas that I'm doing, and, and uh, I love Dinotopia, and I'm, I'm involved with it all the way along. But uh, I mean, right now we have the exhibit in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. In Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, How so, long is that up for? Uh, up till May 25th. And you're making an appearance at some point? I there? just did a couple weeks ago. We, we did a workshop uh, where we had, um, uh, had all the students there with... Uh, so you do teach. Yeah, it was sort of teaching. Yeah, we, we brought uh, artifacts down from the attic of the museum. So stuffed owls and curlews and uh, helmets and all these kind of cool stuff that people were drawing with watercolor pencils. That's mm -hmm. right. And, uh, and kind of took them through the show. You know, I thought I read that you were going to do a book signing. Were you going to yeah, do a book Yeah, did a book signing. So yeah, that was, was right that before that big snowstorm. The big snowstorm. So yeah. drive home. But we've had all together, we've had about, um, I think, almost 30 museum shows of Dinotopia. Wow. Uh, and um, it's, it's worked for museums because it works for a wide range of different audiences uh, and their education people, every museum has an education person who works with school groups to bring them in. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had the show in um, natural history museums, one time curated by a paleontologist. So, so there's kind of the science, uh, the fact and fantasy angle. The Smithsonian had the show one time. The, the, the Dinotopia paintings were at the Smithsonian? Yes, yeah. yeah. And you know, I, one question I've asked um, museum directors when I have dinner with them is, as I say, you know, talking to my friends, I, I always wonder, is there kind of a bias against realism uh, you know, from, from your seat as a museum director? Hold on, wait, 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 we got to hear the answer. And, this and, is and the big, you're going to, you heard it here on, roll. Yeah. you heard it here on suggested donations first. <laughs> and, and what did they say? Universally, everyone has said, and I believe them, that, no, that, that the museum directors are the most open-minded about art of anyone on the planet. Uh, they're, they're the, they're, and what they're concerned about is keeping the museum afloat. I mean, of course they want good reviews. The board donors. They want to keep the donors happy. They want right. to keep the docents happy. They want to work with school groups. They want to build community links. And they want to do something that's exciting that people are talking about, obviously. Um, but they have no preconceived bias against any kind of art. And this is true, at, uh, especially at smaller museums, uh, where they really have to do all kinds of different subjects. And they're mm -hmm. taking traveling shows. I mean, one, one of the trends that's happening in a lot of smaller museums is that they're, not, they're letting go of the curators and they're just taking traveling shows. Um, but I think there's a real opportunity for, for all kinds of realist painters. Uh, if there's a really cohesive show concept that's exciting to people, it connects to a community somehow um, that uh, interests the, the donors to the museum, you know, there's all the financial considerations they have, it just brings people in. Yeah, the know. smaller museums are actually, I've found, fairly open and receptive. Yeah. I, I, done with the uh, Society of Marine Artists. I've been in a, a few shows with them and they, they really, they dot all across the country at different kind of smaller museums, but they're very well received and uh, they're just, they're not going to be at the Metropolitan or the Whitney. But yeah. 
But, you know, even uh, MoMA had a lot of success with the Tim Burton show and the Pixar show. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's hope that uh, and the Norman Rockwell show, the Guggenheim, was that a big was, hit. Was well, that was after September. I thought my, my take on that show was that actually it was organized sort of ironically. And then because it was organized before September 11th. But the show went up shortly after September 11th. And I think because of all the patriotism that came out of September 11th, people were lining around the block for the, you know, that's, that's what people really wanted. Yeah, they were yeah. thirsty for that. And so it spoke very directly to that moment. I think so. I think, yeah, and I think that's working all across the country. I think it's the small museums that are really going to uh, pioneer realism. You know, I, I've heard the line that when, realis when art is in trouble, realism comes to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Or the best cure for bad art is good art. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I think there, there, there's a public out there that is really interested in seeing something they haven't seen before and seeing something that, that affirms their view of the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I don't know what that is for each artist, but... Um, but I think there's, there's real hope. I mean, uh, I think one of the things that's happening in, in um, colleges and art history departments is that there's a lot more awareness of the importance of uh, comics, animation, and illustration yeah. uh, in our, as, as a kind of a key part of art history. Of art history. Do you think anything like the, you know, the, movie, the movies that are coming out that are making you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars have anything to do with that? Yeah, I think, I think movies are probably the dominant art form of our times, the way the salon was in the yeah. 1880s. Yeah. I have a friend, uh, Dennis Nolan, who teaches at the University of Hartford, though uh, Hartford Art School, and he teaches a heretical view of art history, which I love, which is basically that you have this, this whole history of painting from the Renaissance to Baroque all the way through the academic period, uh, and then the way it's usually taught is that there are the Impressionists kind of were defiant and they broke off and that right. led to the post-Impressionists and on through Modernism and contemporary painting. He says what he teaches the, the incoming students is that now that's not what happened at all. That academic painting gradated very smoothly into illustration, illustration in the magazines. And so you have Howard Pyle and Castain and all these, Gilbert Gall and all these guys who are, are at Edmund Austin Abbey who were doing paintings for the Royal Academy, but also illustrating books. And right. what really changed was not the kind of art, it was the patronage and the means of distribution. So it became more so commercial patronage. It, yeah. well, it's no more, more or less commercial than it ever was. Um, but it, it um, was that what people were looking at mm -hmm. from, and if you read the magazines from the 1890s, 1910, 1920, I mean, they never even mention all the people that, are, that were taught to, to we were told, told were important. Mm -hmm. uh, they were talking about Abbey and Bastien yeah. Lepage, yeah. and they were talking about Menzel and There's that great book, The Judgment of Paris, about oh, yeah. uh, Messonnier and Manet, and how nobody knew who Manet was back then, and everybody knew Messonnier. Yeah, Messonnier was the number, the hottest artist in the world. Yeah. Um, so so with, with this view of, of art history, you teach the illustration, comics, and animation as being the the core inventions, the innovations of the 20th century that, uh, you know, America for sure, but also France and Japan and other countries had a hand in uh, as being the, you know, the original um, art forms of our times. Mm. And, and to leave them out of the story of 20th century art is like leaving rock and roll and country and gospel and out jazz of, yeah. out of 20th century music. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. 
So what are you what are you working on now? What's I'm working on, on uh, sketching. Uh, it's a beautiful video. sketch. I just turned in um, a, a, two paintings to Scientific American mm-hmm. of a dinosaur subject, uh, which will be coming out in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so when I get back, I'll be working on videos and and. Uh, do you take some of your sketches that you do um, in your books and? Do you blow them up and you know in the tradition of like the Hudson River School and make bigger, grander paintings, or is it the moment? Is that moment of painting it from life is what you're most interested in? Yeah, I mean, I I do blow them up, and I had some um, paintings that I uh, some forest scenes of conifer forests that I had done. Uh, in fact, when you guys were doing the Hudson River School Fellowship thing, and I used those as reference for this um, uh, dinosaur environment because it would have looked a lot like this this forest I was painting in. So I'm kind of like like Bierstadt, you know, like where I like to be surrounded with all my sketches and work from those. Do you see the sketches themselves as kind of finished art objects, or do you see them more as, I mean, I think as those Hudson River School painters did, as just kind of a step on the way to creating some some artwork? I mean, they're kind of an end in themselves, and you know, with with video and other and blogging and all that stuff, they're they're connected with all that. But but really, it's just a place for experimenting with color and and, uh, and recognizing Jeanette and keeping my nervous hand sketching all the time. Uh-huh. You know, it's great as you guys are talking. I'm sitting here going through uh, um, uh, James Gurney's sketchbook, and it's amazing. The conductor. <laughs> go the... ahead and continue talking while I go through your sketchbook. Well, sketching someone moving <laughs> is that keep Tony from interrupting. Exactly. <laughs> and these are all from life. Wow. I mean, they're all from you know, if it's a person that's in a restaurant, usually this is a a train station uh, in Rhinecliff, New York. So I'm working in in not only gouache but also casein, which is a yeah. a very old. Um, it's actually older than oil. It goes back to the Egyptians. It's a milk binder. And uh, it's a wonderful medium that only one manufacturer still makes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, I, the reason I got started on casein was I was out at this Plain Air painting convention, and there was um, these guys from Richeson Paints. And I said, oh, Do you yeah. guys, don't, didn't you guys buy the Shiva line? You know, they, they made the casein in the 50s before acrylic came along. And they said, yeah, we're, we're thinking maybe of phasing it out. We're not sure. It's, there's not much demand for it. And I said, is the demand decreasing? They said, yeah. And I said, well... They said, "Well, I'll send you some samples." So I said, "Great!" You're like, I'll, I'll take it all. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but they're great. It's they work as amazing underpainting for um, for oil painting too. If you do it on a on a panel, you know you're not supposed to use them on canvas because it cracks. But it's an amazing um, underpainting medium. Did Did Anagoni use it? As far as you know, I th- I know. I think he. It was either that or egg, tempera. Egg, egg, yeah, egg tempera. Yeah, yeah. But I've, uh, I've used casein as an underpainting. It's fat. It's great. It's, it's fast. Great. It feels the most like oil paint. It just dries really. really it sets really up fast. faster. It's very opaque. How long do you spend on some of these the, the sketches that are a little bit more involved? Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, if it's a sunset or late day scene, like like this one you're looking at, that's a late, no very scene. late afternoon. It's maybe 45 minutes. Wow. And but you know, my friend uh, Garen Baker, who lives in Newburgh, and some of our painting buddies there, we paint sunsets sometimes. And uh, you, there, you, as you know, because yeah, you paint a sunset, 20, 25 minutes that's all you max. Yeah. So you spend the first part of the painting building up to what you think it's going to do, yeah. and getting all your paints mixed, <laughs> and, and hope. Yeah. <laughs> And then change everything in yeah, that last like go, five minutes. Oh my god, minutes. it's better yeah. than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps getting better and better. It's very hard to resist the urge to just chase it and keep changing the whole painting. You're better off doing like five different paintings. Yes. Do you do much uh, oil painting on? on I, I have done a lot. I haven't as much lately. lately I've been just working more in water media. Yeah. But uh, but I love oils also. I'm I'm probably mainly an oil painter. 
Yeah. Do I, you load your brush pens with watercolor, or are those ink? Brush yeah, these pens these and, are uh, water brushes, which are um, hollow handled plastic brushes, as as you know. But I mean, as the listeners. Uh, that um, you most people fill with water, but if you get a hypodermic needle, you can fill them with uh, fountain pen ink or watercolor. Uh huh. Um, and so you're using those as your watercolor brushes with like a a palette, a yeah. limited palette of you know whatever you load into your different. Brushes. Yeah. So I mean, you We're can get a demo. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, you can use these for um, clear water, which you can dip right into your paints. Um, or you, if you have a preset color, this is like a warm gray. Oh my God, that's um, amazing. Or black. So you don't have to, I mean, with watercolors, you're carrying around tubes of paint, a little palette, water, yeah. and then the water spills, and you're all wet, but you don't have any water to work with. The thing about these is that they're so um, portable. There's, like if you have watercolor yeah. pencils and a couple of these, water brushes, you can totally sketch in any art museum, and it doesn't look like you're painting, it looks like you're just taking Or at notes. the Metropolitan Opera. Or at the Opera, yes, <laughs> Which exactly. you're not gonna set up with like a little palette that you can't see, but you know your colors and your, that are loaded in the pens. Right, um, and, the, and these preset colors um, give you kind of a known quantity. If you're dealing, if you're oh, working amazing. in a really dark room or something and you can't tell what the colors really are, <laughs> you, can, you can fall back on these. Um, you should market a line of uh, of pens. I'd buy them. Yeah, I'm, manufacturing is something I don't want to get started. With. <laughs> I'm no way. My I got enough to do. And I, you got a blog. You got yeah. to take care of for all of us. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. you could post how send you do me, the, send me a yeah, sample after you do it. Pens and yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, so you have Gurney Journey blog. Uh, you have your website. Right now, your your show is up in Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah, Stanford. It's called the Stanford Museum. Uh, wait, what is it called again? This, the Stanford Museum and Nature Museum. Center in, in Stanford, in Connecticut. Stanford. And there's about 60 Dinotopia paintings, maquettes, and also dinosaur fossils that they have from their collection. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's also, they have uh, river otters. We were talking about otters earlier. Yeah, yeah. So they have otters that you can uh, see. And um, that's up for until uh, May... 25th. May 25th. Yeah. And is that show going to go somewhere else after? Probably, yeah. We have other museums who are interested right now, so we, we have, I want to keep these shows traveling because we, we own all the originals, and if they come back home, uh, we won't be able to use our basement, our foosball table, or anything. It's, it's gonna... So you were able to retain the paintings? Yes. Wow. That, that's the thing. The logistics of a show, you kind of have to have all the paintings in one place. Yeah. So we, we, we kept back from sale most of the major originals so that we could do museum shows. Hmm. So we're, we're traveling them to get them to, to go around and... I'm terrified to have my own paintings in my house. I'm just afraid I'm going to put a hole in them or something. You don't have to look at them. You can put them in a box. <laughs> well, there's that, but also just, uh, you know, I don't know, toys flying around. and It's like, you know, in Meissonier when he was doing that, uh, eight, that Friedland his, painting. His yeah, sons were his having a sword son. fight and it went right through. Put a yeah. hole right through it. Yeah. My six-year-old dinged one of my paintings with a lightsaber not that long ago. Work on panels. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I started, actually, yeah. yeah. Is there any... Uh, place that you really want those paintings to show like a museum that you would love to have a show at well there there's some that we're talking to that are some of my favorite art museums i can't say because it's not turned up yet (laughs) but um but yeah there's there's some museums that are really really full of some stuff that i love that i'd be thrilled to have have and you're in talks with them yeah, we're talking sure. to we're talking to a few different places. Yeah, will you let us know if we if will? They do I go will. Through? Yeah, sure. We want to be the first to break that. News. Okay, <laughs> before Gurney Journey. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor to get to talk to you and pick your brain. And thank you so much for doing Gurney Journey because I I love it uh, with a bunch of other painters. We're always kind of emailing, oh, did you see the post on, you know, on like William Trust Richards or, you know. Big fan, big fan. No, thanks. It's It's my honor to be here with you guys. And what you're doing here is is really important at uh, Grand Central Atelier. Do you yeah. call it Grand Central Academy or Atelier? Well, so Atelier. we had to change the name to Atelier when we formed our own kind of okay, I thought entity. So. so, yeah, it's it's close, but yeah. And it sounds better than the Outer Borough Atelier. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> but this is, this is a, for anyone who, who really wants really solid skills, this is a place that's unbelievable. I got the Grand Tour, and there's yeah. <laughs> areas for all different levels, including people who are doing their master work here. So you can see people working and... Uh, it's just a great atmosphere. Can Bridge we, and Tunnel Academy. Yeah. Can we ever say maybe there might be a James Gurney workshop here ever? I don't know. It's po- anything's possible. We don't live that far. No, we're here the far. Uh, up in uh, Rhinebeck, up the oh, Hudson, okay. that, Hudson nice. River. Yeah. How'd you wait? Just quickly, even before we, how'd you end up there? From from you know. California? Well, I mean, I had some clients, some illustration clients, uh, when I was in L.A., and so we wanted to live on the East Coast. So we bought a van and we drove all over the East Coast looking for a place. We tried Connecticut, and yeah. we we subscribed to local newspapers, which we got out in L.A. <laughs> and there was one article um, in the Rhinebeck paper about how there was something wrong with a police car. They only had one police car, and it could only make a top speed of 35 miles an hour. <laughs> and they were saying, the big debate was whether they, they needed a faster car for, in case they had a chase or something. Yeah. So, oh, this, we could keep that's that my town. But that's where we <laughs> so went. That's where Orlando. <laughs> All right, well, James, thank you okay. so yeah, much for coming. Thank you. And thank really you, Jay Braun. And thanks to the 11th Street uh, Arts Gallery and the Grand Central Atelier for hosting us. Can yep. people come here and see the ga- the the gallery? Yeah, by appointment. We have uh, openings for shows, so we're in the floral show. I think it's coming down soon, and there will be a new show up. But uh, yeah, they can check the the website to find out about the shows. And, and what do they Google to find to find your complete website? I think on the Grand Central Atelier, there's links to everything. So yeah. you go to that main site, and you can find everything there. Great. And one more thing. Uh, look what I brought for you oh, to well, sign. Right. Oh, okay. I brought my Dinotopia <laughs> books. Anyway, thanks for everybody. And uh, please yeah, continue. My son Reppin has been, he was hounding me to tell you about how much he loves the books. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, thanks for everybody, uh, 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 to everybody for listening and send us your, you know, continue to send uh, your emails and all those encouraging words. Thank you for whoever's still awake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. All See right, you. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> no, great questions, guys. That was super fun. Yeah, that so was really So to Tony fun. or Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not gonna sell it. <laughs> <laughs>